0: Really a blessing to be here at First Baptist Church in Pigeon Forge. Took the two-hour drive from Jonesboro, Tennessee. Y'all know where Jonesboro is, near the Tri-Cities. Yeah, I live there with my wonderful wife Lori. We have two teenage kids. Elijah is 15. Our daughter Shoshana is 14. And we homeschool. Uh, We're busy people, and it's really a privilege to be here with you tonight. Originally, I'm a Florida boy, and um, maybe you're wondering how it is a nice Jewish boy from St. Pete, Florida, comes to. Baptist Church in the heart of the Smoky Mountains and tells Christians about Jesus. Well, if you're wondering, glad you asked. Before we get into the presentation, I want to share a little bit of my story uh, because it's important to share a little with you how I got here from there because it's been quite a journey. I'm eternally grateful for all that the Lord Jesus has done for me. You see, I'm a second-generation Holocaust survivor. Uh, The story goes, my father was six years old in Bonn, Germany, his father had served in World War I with a gentleman, was close friends of the family. This man became an SS agent and falsified papers enabling my father and his parents to escape von Germany in May of 1939. They immigrated eventually to Florida. I was born in Daytona, raised in St. Petersburg in a Reformed Jewish household. Reformed Judaism, a liberal expression of Judaism. We were more socially and culturally Jewish than we were religiously and spiritually Jewish. But I was raised in a synagogue. I always believed in God and I believed that he knew me and that I was special in his eyes. But there was a void in my life. And we know as followers of Jesus Christ, it's only a void that the Lord can fill. And I tried to fill it in high school with accomplishment and achievement. In college, I tried to fill it uh, with worldly pleasures and the party scene. Nothing filled that void. And in college, people started sharing their faith in Jesus with me. And I didn't want to hear about their Jesus. You see, as Jewish people, no matter what ilk you are of Judaism, we're taught one thing. Jesus is not for us. He's the God of the Gentiles. But the Holy Spirit kept moving. People kept coming. A friend of mine named Greg, about my junior year of college, at a university down in Gainesville, Florida, that shall remain unnamed. Okay? Because... There are sensibilities we don't want to cross here, okay? All right. I'll admit it to get it out on the table. I'm a gator boy. I'll test your grace quotients right off the bat. Nobody's leaving, Pastor Wayne. That's really good. So, it was at the University of Florida. I met this friend of mine named Greg. We were in the same college together, the College of Journalism. And Greg began sharing his faith with me. And he began challenging me in ways no one had ever done before. He said, Larry... There's absolute truth, and you can get in touch with it. I was like, whoa, truth? And then he posed a question that rocked my world. He said, do you know where you came from? Do you know who you are? Do you know where you're going when you die? No one had ever challenged me like that before. I had no idea how to begin answering. And it sent me spiraling into what we might call an existential crisis of sorts. Because I started searching. I didn't necessarily at the time embrace my Judaism, nor did I embrace Christianity. But I started to search and try to find out why I get up in the morning. Is there a meaning to life? Is there a future? Fast forward on my journey. Graduated from the University of Florida in 1986. Now, about a year later, September 1987, I'm flying home from Atlanta to St. Petersburg. I'm now living in St. Pete. And I'm coaching tennis at a local tennis club and I'm on the airplane and this guy sat next to me all wide eyed. He looked over and he saw me reading a philosophy book and he said, oh, a philosophy book. Are you interested in philosophy? I had to arch my back and say, yeah, yeah, I am. I was just dabbling. He said, great, man, let's talk. I have a master's degree in philosophy and some of you who've seen me speak before might find this hard to believe, but he actually did most of the talking. That was an attempt at humor. You can laugh, and I'll, I'll give it a shot a few more times during our time. But he shared his faith with me. He said, listen, I've tried this, that, and the other. Who I've ended up with is Jesus. I thought, who? Strange words. You see, a nice Jewish boy went to a liberal Catholic high school for mainly academic and athletic reasons. And I say that to say this. I knew about religion. He wasn't talking to me about religion. He was talking to me about a relationship with the living God. And he, again, made a statement. He actually posed two questions to me. He said, you tell me you're Jewish and you believe in God? I said, yeah. He said, well, I challenge you to ask the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Jesus is the Messiah. If you've got the courage, he'll show you. And I was kind of at the end of my proverbial rope, you might say. And I took him up on his offer. And I said, okay. He wrote down some scriptures in Hebrews and Romans and said, I'll be praying for you if you want to talk. Well, over the course of the next three months, I prayed a prayer of faith. I got off the airplane and I I prayed a deep theological prayer some of you might relate to. I said, God, help. Some of you can relate to that prayer, can't you? I said, I don't know about Jesus, Messiah, the Bible, or Christianity, but I believe you're real. Show me. I want to know if Jesus is the Messiah. Jeremiah 33, verse 3. God spoke, speaks through the prophet today, these words. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things you know not. I didn't know, but three months later, by God's grace, early September 1987 on St. Petersburg Beach, I once was blind and now I see. I once was lost and now I was found. And I called that guy up on the air that I'd met on the airplane. He'd given me his business card, and I prayed to receive the Lord. And that was December of 1987. And since that time, my life's been smooth sailing. Brother Wayne, I haven't lost anybody yet. That's, That's a good sign as we're tracking. Now, it's not always been easy. I'm the first Christian in my family. I was a closet Christian for 18 months. That's how long it took me to come out and share my faith with my entire family. I had one grandmother come to faith, my maternal grandmother come to faith, um, through my sharing Christ with her. My father eventually cut me off and disowned me until he passed away in 2012. So I've experienced the joy of salvation in my own family, and I've also, I've also experienced the suffering it comes with identifying with our Lord Jesus. Um, <clears throat> but I'm eternally grateful for the Lord for what he's done for me. Pastor Wayne mentioned Jews for Jesus earlier, and Moish Rosen, who founded Jews for Jesus. He graduated to glory several years ago. He was a mentor of mine and um, a wonderful man of God. I did two missionary stints with Jews for Jesus. I came up here in the early 90s to coach tennis at East Tennessee State University. I was an assistant tennis coach there for nine years. Um, But I also did, after most of my tennis coaching at ETSU uh, from 91 to 97, I did a two-year ministry stint with the mobile evangelistic music team of Jews for Jesus from 97 to 99. The Liberated Wailing Wall, anybody ever heard of that music team? Well, they were—they were retired now, but they were a traveling music team that preached the gospel through music, drama, and testimony. Um, if you don't know what that looks like, picture, picture in your mind, Fiddler on the Roof meets Jesus. That's all I can, the only way I know how to explain it, Okay. Uh, we used to do presentations in college campuses and a lot of churches, did that for two years, met my wonderful wife, Lori came off the road in 99. I went back to coaching tennis at East Tennessee state. And then in 2003, the Lord called us back into full-time ministry, uh, with Jews for Jesus now as vocational missionaries in New York. Uh, I was a frontline missionary based out of New York city where there are a few Jewish people. Yeah. One out of every eight people in New York city is. Jewish. And there's an estimated another million Jewish people in the surrounding areas. So it was a wonderful time. Obviously, these are life changing experiences and sharing Jesus with my Jewish people and anybody else who is willing to listen, came off, came, came out of the ministry and took a sabbatical in 2009. Then I served four years as an outreach pastor involved in missions at Grace Fellowship Church in Johnson City. And then the last four years, since 2013, uh, Lori and, and I have begun Larry Stand Ministries, which we've been doing full-time the last four years. And I'll tell you a little bit about our ministry a little bit later on, but I've got a real burden to help Christians share the gospel with anybody in your sphere of influence. Because... If you can tell Jewish people about Jesus, you can tell just about anybody about Jesus. And the thing is about evangelism that though methodologies might be different with different peoples and contextualizing might be a little bit different, the evangelistic principles undergirding the evangelistic process are transcendent and eternal. And as part of our ministry, my heartbeat is to share those principles and encourage and equip Christians To share Jesus with those in your sphere of influence. Because there are people in your life I'll never meet. There are people uh, in my world that you'll never meet. But together, we as the body of Christ are called to go out. And though few of us may have the gift of evangelism, I don't know if I have the gift, but all of us have a mandate to be witnesses for Jesus. And so I'll tell you a little bit more about our ministry later. But um, for now, that's a little bit of my story. And again... ...eternally grateful for the Lord. He's truly blessed me, and I couldn't praise Him or thank Him enough. And I'm, I'm grateful to be here tonight to share this presentation with you. Now, are you excited to see this? Yes. Has anybody ever seen this presentation before? Okay? Well, don't give, don't give any of the highlights away, okay? Okay. You haven't seen this one, okay? All right. <clears throat> well, let's begin now. Now, if you were to ask some Jewish boys or girls... Who the hero of Passover is, after giving credit to the Lord, they will certainly tell you Moses. And that is true. But it's not the whole truth. You see, if you're here to ask some Jewish boys or girls who know the Messiah, like our children, Elijah and Shoshana, that same question. Who's the hero of Passover? Then they might tell you Jesus. Now, some people might say, Larry, what's Jesus got to do with Passover? Passover is Jewish. Well, so was Jesus. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> and not only did Jesus celebrate the Passover every year while he dwelt among us on this earth, I believe that Jesus is clearly pictured in all of the symbols of Passover and in the story of Passover itself. For the message of Passover is the, is the message of redemption. And the story of Passover is the story of our liberation from bondage. Now, tonight, as I explain to you all this traditional Passover setting, it's my hope that you're going to see it as much more than just an explanation of a commemorative meal, but that you will view it as I view it, as an object lesson of the life and mission of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look closely, friends, because I believe that you're going to see a picture of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. If you've got a Bible, if you don't, no worries. I'm going to be reading these few verses and you can listen along. But Luke 22, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 13. <clears throat> By the way, Passover's coming up in just a couple of weeks. So it's pretty exciting. Got Resurrection Sunday, Easter, Passover all coming up. Luke 22, we're going to read verses 7 through 13, okay? Beginning in verse 7 of Luke 22, we read these words. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, the first night of Passover begins a seven-day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during that time, we eat nothing that contains any leaven or yeast. Why no leaven? Well, in the scripture, leaven is frequently used as a symbol of sin. In ancient times, a small piece of leaven would be used to ferment an entire portion of dough. It was the leaven that caused the dough to rise, to become puffed up. Just as sin can cause us to become puffed up, up in our own eyes. So during this time, we eat no leaven as a way of saying that we want to break the daily sin cycle in our own lives. That's why in some Orthodox Jewish homes, for up to six weeks prior to Passover, the house will undergo a complete spring cleaning. We'll remove all the cakes, cookies, bread, cereals, anything that has any leaven in it. Now, this is usually the work of the woman of the house. But did you notice in the passage we just read that Luke says that Jesus sent two men, To prepare the Passover. Perhaps he sent two men because in Judaism, it's the man who has standing before God. Not only when it comes to prayer, but when it comes to ceremonial preparation as well. So if you think about it, this means that the man should be doing the cleaning during these six weeks. And all the women said. But don't worry, gentlemen. We have a great way to deal with this dilemma. (laughs) We have a great solution to the problem. It goes like this. Now, true, the house is spotless because the woman has spent the last six weeks cleaning and removing every speck of leaven. Well, almost every speck, that is. You see, she's taken a few crumbs and she's hidden them somewhere in the house. And it's up to the man to find them. So the night before Passover, he'll return home and he'll take up some rather strange-looking cleaning tools, including a napkin, a wooden spoon, and a feather. <clears throat> and he goes on what we call Berichat chametz, the search for leaven. Now, where could those crumbs be? Anywhere. In the basement, up in the attic, behind the refrigerator, But fortunately enough for him, she's been good enough to hide them exactly where she hid them the year before and the year before that. And you get the idea. Nice wife. And all the gentlemen said, (laughs) amen. Finally, after searching, but not too long, the husband will discover the crumbs. And with a very steady hand, he'll sweep the crumbs into the spoon with the feather. Remember, since the crumbs represent sin, he's not permitted to touch them. Instead, he'll wrap them up in the napkin, and actually, in some traditions, take it down to the bonfire in the courtyard of the local synagogue. Now, all the men of the congregation are gathered there, and then each will throw his bundle of leaven into the flames. Then he'll return home and proudly proclaim, Now, I have purged my house of all leaven, but just to be certain, he'll add, And all manner of leaven, which I have neither seen nor removed, to be considered null and void, and as the dust of the earth. Amen. Well, the house has been cleansed, and the home is now ready for the Passover celebration. And it is a celebration. But my ancestors were instructed to eat that first Passover meal with their loins girded, with their sandals on their feet, and with their staves in hand, ready to go at a moment's notice. But tonight, tonight, we're actually going to relax and recline on pillows. You see, in ancient Middle Eastern societies, only the free could recline at dinner. Only the redeemed. Now, on Passover, the head of the household is going to put on special ceremonial garments. He'll wear a white robe called a kittle, because in Jewish tradition, white is the color of royalty. It will also don a large white headdress called a mitre. Now, if you know what this is, and I know you people are Jewish savvy, what am I wearing? What's this called? It's a yarmulke, a kippah. Some people call it a skull cap. I've never called it that. It seems kind of weird. A skull cap. Now, Jewish men will often cover their heads as a sign of respect before God. But tonight, instead of wearing the usual yarmulke or kippah, the head of the household puts on something a little bit more elaborate royal robes and symbol of a crown because tonight the head of the household is a king and as a king he's going to guide his family through the traditional Passover Seder now Seder is the Hebrew word which means order because the Passover celebration follows a specific order of service and that order is recorded right here in this book called Ahagadah. Ahaggadah which means the telling The telling of the Passover story. Well, I see everything is about ready. We have a customary greeting at Passover. We say, let all who are hungry come and eat. Now, don't get excited. I'm not really going to serve you a great meal tonight. Actually, the foodie in our family is currently in Jonesboro, Tennessee. She's unavailable. It's my wife, Lori, okay? But just the same, the invitation stands, come celebrate the Passover with me. This begins with the lighting of the candles, and this is usually the duty and honor of the woman of the house. And after lighting the candles, she will then recite a traditional Hebrew prayer, which goes like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart with your commandments, And commanded us to light the Passover lights. I think it's fitting that a woman kindles these lights. For it can remind us that the Messiah, the light of the world, would not come from the seed of man, but from the seed of woman. As the prophet Isaiah foretold, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory of thy people Israel. Friends, I want you to know something tonight. Passover is much more than a meal, okay? It's actually a banquet. And it's much more than a service. It is a ceremony. And while a meal and a service might take just one or two hours, the Passover celebration may take a total of up to four hours. So let's see. 7.30, 8.30. Just kidding. Dinner plans, anyone? Actually, during the Seder meal, each adult will drink from his or her cup and refill it four times. The first cup is called the Kiddush cup, the cup of sanctification. Then we have the second cup, the cup of plagues. Then we have the third cup, the cup of redemption. And the cup of redemption is actually the focal point of the entire evening. Then we have the fourth cup, the cup of Hallel or the cup of praise. It's with the first cup, the cup of sanctification, that the host will offer a blessing for the rest of the evening to follow. Raising the kiddish cup aloft, he'll give praise and thanks to God Almighty, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. The Seder has begun and the youngest person present will come forward to ask the meaning of Passover. He or she will ask the traditional four questions which are found in the Haggadah. They are chanted. And the first one goes like this. Which means, why is this night different than all other nights? Those of us who know the story of Passover We're obligated to respond. This is because of what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, when he redeemed me with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Friends, I want you to know something. Passover is much more than just about God's message of redemption. Passover is also about God's means of redemption through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. My ancestors were instructed to take a spotless lamb to roast it whole without breaking any of its bones and to apply its blood to the doorposts of our homes, to the top of the doorpost, the lentil, and to the two side posts. Because of our obedience to God's command and because of our faith in the effectiveness of his provision, we were spared the ravages of the tenth plague to befall the land of Egypt. For when the Lord saw the blood on our doors, He forced death to do what? To pass over. That's right. To pass over. That's where we get the word Passover. In Hebrew, the word is Pesach. Pesach. Try that with me. Pesach. You got to get the (laughs) happening on the end. Pesach. Very good. Very good. Pesach. Passover. The holiday which commemorates the time when death passed over the houses of Israel because of The blood. The blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb. What a mighty act of redemption. But what a picture. What a picture of an even greater redemption accomplished through the sacrifice of another Passover lamb. The lamb of God, our Messiah and Lord Jesus. For just as none of the bones of those first lambs were broken, so none of Jesus' bones were broken in his death. And just as my ancestors had to apply in faith the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes, so each one of us must apply in faith the blood of the Messiah to the doorposts of our hearts. Amen? The child will then ask another question. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? Matzah. And we explain our ancestors in their haste to leave Egypt had to take their bread with them while it was still flat. One of the items I want to show you now is this one. This is called the matzotash, And inside the matzotash are three layers of matzah, unleavened bread. Each layer is separated from the others by some cloth. Now, in a couple of weeks on Passover, the head of the household is going to remove The middle layer of the matzatash. He'll recite a blessing and then break it in two. He'll set one half aside and he'll give the other half a very special name. The Afikomen. The Afikomen. Can you say that with me? Afikomen. Very good. That's not a Hebrew word, actually. It's a Greek word, which means that which comes later. That which comes later. You see, we don't eat the komen now. We're going going to eat it later. But for now, what we'll do is we're going to wrap it up in this napkin. And then it's going to be hidden from view, buried. No one at the table knows where it's hidden. But later on, all the children are going to have to search for it and find it. Okay? So at this point, I want the children, okay, to stand up. Face the back of the church building, okay? And close your eyes because I've got to find a really creative place to hide this comin', And then you'll have an opportunity to find it later. Hmm, I wonder where I'll hide it. Okay, I've hidden the comin'. Okay, you can turn around, open your eyes, and take your seats, okay? All right, are you excited? I'm going to call you up in just a few minutes, but can you wait? Patience is a virtue, you know. But in a few minutes, I'm going to call you up, and it's going to be your time To shine, okay? Awesome. Now, the child will then proceed to ask two more questions. Why on this night do we eat only bitter herbs, and why on this night do we dip our food twice when normally we don't even dip it once? Let me explain by showing you this. This is a Seder plate, and despite its appearance, it is not used for deviled eggs. (laughs) I like deviled eggs, and I like cheesy jokes. Actually, a symbolic piece of food from from the Passover table is placed into each one of these compartments, and all of these symbols are part of the picture of redemption. Are we beginning to notice a common theme running throughout our time? Redemption, to be purchased back out of slavery. The first item we have is called carpets or greens. Generally, we use parsley or lettuce, in this case, parsley. These greens represent life. But before we eat them, we're going to dip them into salt water, which represents the tears of life. So by dipping, we are reminded that a life without redemption is a life immersed in tears. I can remember my life without redemption. Can you remember yours? Next, we have the chazeret. The root of the bitter herb. Generally, we're going to use a horseradish root or an onion, in this case an onion. And the chazer reminds us that the root of life is bitter, as it certainly was for my ancestors in Egypt. Next, we have maror, the bitter herb itself. Freshly ground horseradish. Now, on Passover, we are instructed to eat a full teaspoon of horseradish. Any volunteers? Now, do you know what happens when you eat a full teaspoon of horseradish? Normal human beings, they cry, right? You have little choice in the matter. This is a battle usually between the horseradish and your sinuses. And the horseradish always wins. Now, I was doing this several years ago uh, at a church in Pennsylvania. And I had real horseradish. And I said, anybody want to try it? And this guy said, yeah, I've got to try it. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, I must try it. And he took a big spoonful and he, picked, and he took a big thing on the, on the masa, And immediately, he began... Exiting the church, I assumed to get water. And I reminded the brother, by the way, as you're going out, keep this in mind. He who sows in tears shall reap in joy. So, enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) But like the Chazeret, again, the Maror brings to our minds how bitter life is without redemption. By way of contrast, now we have the Haroseth. The harosith represents the mortar that our ancestors used when they had to make bricks for Pharaoh in Egypt. Generally, it's made up of chopped apples, raisins, honey nuts, and it tastes awesome. But maybe some of you are thinking to yourself, Larry, why use such a sweet mixture to represent such bitter toil? Don't worry, we have a terrific answer. We say even the most bitter labor is sweetened with the promise of redemption. That's right redemption. Now, this is not an Easter egg, although Easter is coming up in a couple of weeks. This is actually called the Hagigah, which originally was the name given to the special temple sacrifice in Jerusalem. But today, the Hagigah takes on a whole new meaning for my people. Today, it is a token of grief. Grief over the destruction of the second temple. During the Seder, it's broken, open, sliced, given out to each person at the table, but before we eat it, we're going to dip it into salt water, which represents what? Tears. That's right, tears. But it's not only a token of grief, it's also a symbol of new life. The last item on the Seder plate, probably the strangest of all, is called the Zroa. The Zroa is the shank bone of the lamb. Passover is sometimes known as the feast of the Passover lamb. And yet in most Jewish homes, roasted lamb is not served at Passover. And you say, well, why? Well, remember a moment ago I mentioned the temple was destroyed. And when it was, so was the altar where the sacrifices were offered, where the Passover lambs were offered. So from that time to this day, no sacrifices have been offered. And so no lamb is served at Passover. Passover. Instead, this Zeruah, like the egg, the Hagigah, reminds us of sacrifices which are no longer offered. Now, the presence of these two elements, the egg and the shank bone, raises for us tonight a very, very interesting question. With no temple, with no altar, and with no sacrifice, how is it possible to atone for our sins? For the law of Moses states very clearly I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Some people, both Jewish and Gentile, might say, you know, Larry, perhaps that was important 2,000 years ago, but it doesn't really have any bearing on our lives today, does it? Doesn't it? If not, then why does the Haggadah instruct us to take the story of Passover personally as though each one of us needs to be redeemed? I think that we're supposed to take the story of redemption personally because each one of us needs to be redeemed. But with no sacrifice, how is redemption even possible? With no Lamb of God, how? How? Once, nearly 2,000 years ago, there lived a Jewish man by the name of Yochanan. You might know him better as John, John the Baptist. And one day while baptizing people in the Jordan River, his gaze fell upon the form of another Jewish man, his cousin, a man named Yeshua. We know him better as Jesus. And John looked at Jesus that day and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how redemption, not through the blood of lambs, redemption through the blood of the Passover lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus. We now come to the second cup, the cup of plagues. In Jewish tradition, a full cup represents complete joy. But in one sense, our joy is not complete. At this point during the seder, we dip our finger in the cups and we let ten drops fall onto our plates as we recite the ten plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians. Now we mourn their loss and express sorrow over their destruction. There's a very important lesson in this cup. Pharaoh defied the will of God. He was repeatedly told what God wanted him to do, but his heart was hardened and he said, nope, I refuse. I will not. As a result, he brought death and destruction into his own land and even into his own home. You see, Pharaoh's son died because of his hardness of heart. Now, tonight, I think about my life, and you think about your life. How often do we choose our own desires over God's direction? How often do we know what God's will is for our lives, but how often do we say to the Lord, Lord, I I, I can't do that, Lord? It's just too hard. Lord, I'm sorry. Let me give all of us a little piece of Jewish wisdom this evening, okay? If God is telling us to do something, just do it, right? Just do it. But as I've said, Passover really is the night to rejoice and praise God. And on Passover in a few weeks, I'll have many reasons to praise and thank him. I'll be able to praise the Lord because the angel of death has passed over my ancestors' homes and because he has redeemed my people out of bondage in Egypt. But you know, on a personal note, as a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, On Passover, I am going to celebrate the fact that I have been redeemed from an even greater bondage, the bondage of sin, through my faith in Jesus, the Lamb. You see, through faith in him, each one of us may pass over from death unto life. And all God's people said, that's good news, isn't it? In Hebrew, the word is besorah tovah. is a word which means glad tidings or good news from which we get the word gospel. At this point during the Seder, there's a natural break between the second and third cup, the cup of redemption, where we partake of the meal. And usually growing up in St. Pete, Florida, when I go to the synagogue or when we have a Seder meal at home, usually a roast brisket or chicken, as I mentioned earlier, we never had lamb. Anywhere, at home or at the synagogue. We didn't eat lamb. Usually a roast brisket, chicken, matzo ball soup, uh, everything kosher, of course, right? But I want to take this natural break to briefly tell you about our ministry, Larry Stand Ministries, okay? As I mentioned, Lori and I were compelled to begin the ministry in the fall of 2013. And we exist to make the gospel of Jesus a confident topic of conversation for every Christian. And we do that in a variety of ways. Uh, I speak, I teach. Um, I I pattern evangelism for people. A few things that I do personally to be an example to the body is I do prison ministry. I was just up at Northeast Correctional Facility in Mountain City last week. I usually go up about every two months and minister up there at the prison. I serve part-time as a marketplace chaplain. You know, the marketplace, the business place is the largest untapped mission field in America. So I serve part-time as a marketplace chaplain serving two businesses at three locales in East Tennessee, um, uh, do some street evangelism in Johnson City, now and then. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in downtown Johnson City. It was with a friend of mine, Ed. And we met uh, this couple there at the bus station. Um, and we got to share the gospel with this 30-year-old woman named Cass. And Cass was not a believer. Um, she was more into worshiping nature, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, and was able to share the gospel with her and give her a New Testament. Would you take a moment tonight if God brings her to your heart and pray for this gal named Cass. Pray that if she hasn't, that she would soon come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Um, I I write a weekly evangelistic devotional. There's a, a book table in the back after our time together. If you want to sign up to get monthly updates, you can do that. I write a weekly evangelistically oriented devotional. Right now I'm doing lessons from Jesus. It's pretty meaty, about a thousand words. So if you want to get weekly encouragement for your witness, um, feel free to sign up for that. We've got some free and not-so-free stuff. Some of the free pamphlets are a pamphlet like this, Pointers on Witnessing. This is a good little primer. If, you're, if you need some encouragement in your witness, take this and all the other free pamphlets that we've put together for you. Um, I wrote this book and published it in 2014. We published it in 2014. It's called Serving in His Court... Biblical Principles for Personal Evangelism from the Heart of a Coach. I kind of use tennis as the angle to unpack uh, the principles of the evangelistic process. You know, Brother Rand was talking about Moish Rosen earlier. Moish, he wrote a very short booklet about 50, 60 pages many years ago called demystifying jewish evangelism anybody uh, demystifying evangelism it wasn't just for jewish people it was sharing the gospel with anybody anybody ever read that little booklet did you ever read it you read it really powerful wasn't it demystifying personal evangelism and allah demystifying personal evangelism i seek to demystify the process you know some people think oh evangelism yeah that's doing roman's road the four spiritual laws You know, I share the gospel and then I'm good. No, (laughs) there's a lot more to the process than that. Can you pray? Yes, that's an essential part of evangelism. Uh, Can you love on people and befriend people and develop trust and rapport with people? Relationships, a huge part of the process. Can you demonstrate God's love in tangible ways to people? Yes, that's an important part of the evangelistic process. And ultimately, proclamation of the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, we published this a couple of years ago. Uh, we've got a new book that's soon to be hot off the press. Um, it's a book called Into the Gale, 12 Evangelistic Lessons from the Book of Acts. Uh, I penned about 25 devotionals in 2015 and 2016, and that's providing the core for this, this book, Into the Gale. And the basic thesis of the of this book is, in, in light of increasing persecution against the church and against believers here in America, how then shall we live? And I answered that with this Bible study directly from the book of Acts. So I'm taking pre-orders tonight. Uh, Brother Wayne, you, did you show them the the bookmark? You can take a bookmark. I've got a free bookmark if anybody wants it into the gale. We're taking pre-orders tonight, or you can go order it, and I will... I will sign it gladly and send it to you if you want to get it. So those are some of the things and a little bit about our ministry. And and I encourage you, um, come talk with me after the presentation. I'd love to talk with you and meet with you. And one more thing. If you've got an unbeliever in your life, you want me to pray for them by name. We're a small enough ministry. I've got an Excel spreadsheet. Um, You give me their name and any details you want. And I'll be happy to join with you in prayer for them. Okay, and for the witness of others to them happy to do that. Okay, that's one of the things that we do as well So with that We're now going to transition back into our seder meal. Okay, has this been informative so far helpful so far? You're excited. Okay, good. This is a one-act deal. There's no intermission Okay, so we're continuing on with the third cup the cup of redemption, which as I mentioned earlier Is the focal point of the entire evening, but the seder can't continue just yet young person. <laughs> the Seder can't continue just yet because something has to be found earlier. Something was broken, buried and now needs to be brought back. Do you remember what it is? And if anybody wants to help you, they can blurt it out. What did I hide? What's broken, buried and now needs to be brought back. What is it? The cracker, the cracker in the white napkin. It's that funny Greek word, the afi. What's it called? Anybody? Goleman. The Aphi Goman. Good job. Now, what is your name? Micah? Awesome. Come on up, Micah. Come find the Afikoman and come get the big prize. I brought it all the way from the big city. Not New York City, Johnson City. But you're going to love it nonetheless, okay? It's hidden underneath something. So, Micah, you've got to look under things. Okay? Okay? You want to come up a little higher now? Now, You all can help him. Look under stuff, okay? Good. Keep looking under stuff. It's not there. What else can you look under? You know? Okay, look under okay, you Okay. There's there's not one. There's two chairs, Micah, so maybe you might want to think about possibly checking out the other one. Okay? You found it! All right. Let's give Micah a big hand. Now, Micah, come on up here, buddy. Come over here. Now, I was a tennis coach for a lot of years. You play sports? What do you play? Do you do anything? Okay, you give high fives because I like to give high fives. Give me a high five, buddy. Good job. Awesome. That's an awesome high five. Now, you ready for your prize? Are you ready? Now, where's the, wh- the horseradish is over here, right? I wouldn't do that to the boy. You ready? Close your eyes. I'm going to give you your prize. Now, open your eyes. A golden dollar for you, my friend. Is that pretty cool and shiny? All right, you give me the Afi comment and we give you a big round of applause. Good job, Micah. All right. Now, true confessions, I'm not a big fan of the horseradish. I only eat it one time a year, but you're a bright crowd. You'll figure out when, okay? <laughs> I wouldn't do that to the boy. But once the afikoman is, is found, it's returned to the head of the household and broken again. And then each person will receive a piece of it about the size of an olive. And that olive-sized piece is then taken along with the third cup, the cup of redemption. Does this look familiar? It should, brothers and sisters, because this is the origin of our communion service. And not only that, consider this. Where else can we find a clearer picture of our Messiah Jesus than in this custom concerning the Yafi Komen, which was broken, buried, and then brought back? Even the matzah itself which is unleavened, a symbol of a sinless nature, speaks of Jesus. Our rabbis have set down very specific regulations concerning the preparation of matzah if it's to be found suitable for use. And one of these is that the matzah must be pierced. Do you all see those holes? Jesus was pierced. God, speaking through the prophet Zechariah, said, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Additionally, the Jewish prophet Isaiah wrote 700... Years before Jesus walked this earth as a man, these words and perhaps the most powerful messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, the prophet wrote about the work of Messiah on our behalf, that he was pierced for our transgressions and by his stripes we are healed. Do you see the stripes on the matzah? But I see our Messiah symbolically not only in the Afikomen, I also see him in the Matzah as well. Do you remember this pouch containing the three layers of Matzah from which we drew the Afikomen? Now there's quite a bit of disagreement among our rabbis about the meaning of this strange pouch, this mysterious three-in-one. Some teach that the Matzahs represent the three patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? Still others teach that the matzahs represent the three divisions of worship in the ancient kingdom. The priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel. But still, why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? Still others teach that the matzahs represent three crowns. The crown of learning, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingship. But once more... Why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? In the Jewish community today, the origin of this tradition has been lost. That's why there are so many competing explanations. But there's actually another explanation which has its roots in the first century. There are three layers here, and yet they form a unity, a triunity. And the Hebrew word which may mean just such a unity is the word echad, Echad. And it brings to my mind the words of God given to us through Moses who declared, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew word used for one in that sentence is Echad, a unity. And on Passover, the head of the household is going to remove the middle layer of this Echad, this unity, It is made visible while the other two remain hidden from our view. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the bread of life. We Jewish people who know Messiah know also that the unity of the Matsutosh bears witness to the unity of one God, Revealed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so once more the question must be posed. Why is the middle monster broken, buried, and then brought back? I believe because Jesus was broken, buried, and then brought back. This is my body which is broken for you and you and you and all of us. Do this in remembrance of me, our Lord Jesus tells us. We now come to the third cup, the cup of redemption. The fruit of the vine at Passover is usually read, our rabbis tell us, to remind us of the precious blood of that first Passover lamb sacrificed in order to redeem us from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh. In the same way, the blood of another Passover lamb Our Messiah Jesus was sacrificed in order to redeem us from slavery and bondage to sin. It was concerning this cup, the cup of redemption, the cup taken after dinner, that Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He spoke of the new covenant promised to us by God through the prophet Jeremiah, when he declared, behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. After those days, I will put my law within them and on their hearts will I write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The broken piece of Comen is taken along with the third cup, the cup of redemption in remembrance of the body and blood of the Passover lamb. Friends, I want you to know something tonight. My Passover lamb is Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen? We now come to the fourth cup, the cup of Hallel, or the cup of praise. Now, everybody in this room knows a Hebrew word, but I wonder if all of you know that the word is Hebrew. And the word is Hallelujah, which means praise, praise God, praise the Lord. Now, the first part of that word is Hallel, which means praise. And this is the cup of praise. One more cup I want to share with you tonight. This is the cup of Elijah. No one drinks from the cup of Elijah. In fact, in thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jewish homes and synagogues, in just a matter of weeks, an entire place setting will be left untouched. All for the prophet Elijah. And you say, you think, why? Why this longing for the prophet Elijah? Well, it's recorded by the Hebrew prophet Malachi that before the Messiah comes, he will be preceded by the return of Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. And so every year a child's going to go to the door and open it wide, hoping that the prophet will accept the invitation, enter the home, and announce the coming of the Messiah. Well, friends, I've got great news for us tonight, right here in the heart of the Great Smoky Mountains. I know that Elijah has returned. For when Jesus spoke of the prophet John, he said of him, if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who has come. The prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah has come. And so has the Messiah himself, Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Savior of both Jew and Gentile. And all God's children said, Amen. 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 So now at this point, um, we're going to ask questions of me and I'm going to do the best I can to answer questions. And, you know, like any fathers in here, raise your hand. You know, Daddy's prerogatives, you know, you tell why, why? Because daddy said so. I have a secret prerogative to say, I don't know. <laughs> but tell me your name, friend. Yeah. But Ed's here, see? And if I can't answer and Wayne, Pastor Wanky, Ed's here. So we, we're going to be, we're in good hands, okay? Just kidding with you, brother. So fire away. Listen, here's the deal. If you have a question, perhaps there are others who are thinking the same thing. And again... No bad questions. Could be some really lame answers, but there are no bad questions. OK, so fire away and Pastor Wayne, when you see fit, just say time for one more and we'll close it. OK, so any questions and this I, I've been in a lot of rooms. You're not a bashful audience. So go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Loud so we all can hear. Good question. Good question. She said, is this the same that Jesus would have celebrated? Remember, Exodus 12, Exodus 12, God instituted the biblical Passover. And you remember the elements, the bitter herbs, the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread. So at the Passover, Jesus celebrated. You would have had those to be sure. Now, cup of Elijah. I'm not sure. But I know he didn't have the Matzatash and the Afikoman. Those were later added traditions. And there's a really good book um, written by Moish and Seal Rosen called Christ in the Passover. It's about a hundred page primer. It's the best book of all books on Christ in the Passover, okay? It's the dad book. You could go to JewsForJesus.org, they've got a virtual library, and that's a great book. So to answer your question, There was the original Seder meal with the original elements in Exodus 12, biblically. There was Passover at the time of Christ. And now Jewish people around the world celebrate Passover with the essentials of the Seder meal, but also with different kinds of traditions added. Allah, the matzah, tash, tash, etc. Okay, does that help you? Okay. Trying to give sound answers. It's not an easy task. Next. Thank you. Next question. Questions? You've got questions. Yes, ma'am. Well, again, it was hard. I had... Uh, remember I mentioned the grandmother who prayed with me to receive Christ? Well, originally when I, when I said, Hey, Lillian, I've, I've come to faith in Jesus. She said, How can you do that? No one in our family has ever believed in Jesus before. My father said, Whatever you do, never share your faith with your grandmother. My mom had a little different idea when I shared my faith with her. She said, you, you're, we're going to get you some counseling. You're just going through a phase. And I, I had to break it to her. I, I know the wonderful counselor, you know, the everlasting father. In um, this phase has been 30 plus years. So it's been challenging for me and my family. But I have a good relationship with my mom and my sister today. Um, so if God brings them to your heart, my mom's name is Sari. And my sister's name is Cheryl. And they are more secular Jews, okay? They have some semblance of a God paradigm, but they don't go to the synagogue regularly, and they don't embrace Jesus. But if you would pray for my mom, Sari, and my sister, Cheryl, that would be great. So thank you. Other questions that you might have? Yes. You mentioned that you were more of a um, cultural Jew and not a religious Jew. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Orthodox Jewish people today in the world, 10 to 15 percent, estimated 14 million. So if you do the math, it's not very many, a million, two million, something like that of people who actually take the Bible seriously, take the tradition seriously, seek to seek God, believe in God. But now 85 percent, thereabouts, 80, 85 percent. Um, Are religious or not religious, but not generally very serious about their faith, and this is the way it is in Judaism today. Okay, so most Jewish people that you know, if they're if they're men and they're not wearing a yarmulke or kippah, they're not going to know a whole lot about their religion. Okay, and you actually know more Judaism than they. Why? Because you have the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. Okay, and, and you know a lot more Judaism than you think. I want to share one other thing that I think will help you. And by the way, in Israel today, only, only one out of five Israelis go to the synagogue regularly. It is the religious state in name only. But what I want to share with you in, in two or three minutes, I want you to understand this. And if you can, you're going to, the light's going to go on. You're going to go, oh, that makes so much sense. The, re- the Jewish religion of today is not the Jewish religion of Jesus' day. Okay? When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there was no longer an altar of sacrifice. That was where Jewish people received atonement, right? We talked about it before. That's the $64,000 question. How are Jewish people saved today? I mean, how do they think they have their sins forgiven today without an altar of sacrifice? And what happened was you had the Messianic Jews, the believers, you know, Peter, James, and John and the gang. You had them, and then you you had the unbelieving religious community. And the unbelieving rabbinic community, after the temple was destroyed, had to figure out how to propagate the religion without the altar. And they spent about 30 years in the Judean wilderness in a place called Yavna. And they came up with the foundational tenets for what we know today as traditional rabbinic Judaism. This is the religion of the rabbis. And the religion of the rabbis holds to two positions that are completely counter to biblical Judaism. Number one, they believe, and now they, they posit this, that we have our sins forgiven, not through the altar of sacrifice, but we are forgiven of our sins and brought into right standing before God through prayer, repentance, and good works. All of which you can find in the Old Testament. Many scriptures, okay? So there's great golf fixed to number one. Great golf fixed number two... Is the authority of God's word Now This is not a proof text But The first five centuries after Christ There were oral traditions The Pharisees believed that God on Mount Sinai Gave Moses the written law Right? The written law that we have recorded But they also believed that God gave Moses an oral law An addendum A supplement To the written law And the Pharisees believe Moses gave it to Aaron, Aaron to his sons, and on down the line through the generations. That's called the tradition of the elders. If you read in the Gospels, and Jesus is hammering on that. Remember, you can read it in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark about Jesus saying, "You're trusting in the traditions of men and not the commandments of God. What are you doing?" He was he was he was challenging them and 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 condemning them for that erroneous belief. Well. First five centuries after Christ, this oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, was written down into two primary books. The Babylonian Talmud the oral, the, and the Jerusalem Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is the, is the authoritative oral law in Judaism. Religious Jews today believe it is as authoritative as the Bible itself. Okay? If you add on the Mishnah, which is commentaries on the scriptures, and then rabbinic teachings over 2,000 years, which many hold to be authoritative, now do you see why most Jewish people don't know their word? Whose word? <laughs> whose word? Maimonides, Rashi, whose word? Moses, who, whose word are we going to believe? Their rabbi, probably. So now the authority of God's word has made the, the canon in Judaism so convoluted and cumbersome. So today we have a religion called traditional rabbinic Judaism, where the means of atonement is completely different than the biblical means atonement of atonement and the authority of whose word is the word of God is completely different than because now it's the Bible plus. We've heard this before in other religions, haven't we? Yes, the Bible is the God's word, but this is also authoritative. Now and I' and in Joshua chapter one, this is not a proof text, but I find it very compelling. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then what book? Joshua. After the Torah, God tells Joshua these words. This book of the law shall not depart from what? From your mouth. Why? God knew, didn't he? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be may be careful to do according to all that is spoken. No, (laughs) to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Not a proof text, but what I just shared with you, there you have it. So if you know Jewish people, you go, hey, tell me about your word. (laughs) they're <laughs> going to go, well, so does that help you? Yeah. One more question. By the way, my follow up answer won't take 10 minutes. OK, but I, I wanted to share that because did that help you? Have you heard that before? Anybody heard that? Does that help you? OK, so now, you know, biblical Judaism is not rabbinic Judaism. It's not it's not traditional rabbinic Judaism of today. It's a great golf fixed. So now we understand a lot. Yes. One more. Yes. Right, exactly. Many. It's a fear. I mean, listen, when you say yes to Jesus, you say you've rejected. I I tell people, I've met many people, why don't you just call yourself a Christian? I am a Christian, but I'm a follower of Messiah. I mean, Jesus was a Jew, the disciples were Jews, the Bible written by Jews with the possible exception of Luke. The story takes place in Israel. I mean, you could say the Gospels are simply a Jewish debate among Jewish people about the true identity of a Jewish man. Jesus. Now, what could be more Jewish than that? Okay, no one ever told me this before, but the most Jewish thing anybody can do is to place their faith in Jesus. But when I say yes to Jesus, I have, in essence, rejected traditional rabbinic Judaism and everything about the Judaism of today. I am. I tell people, look, I've not rejected my Jewish people, nor have I rejected my Jewish identity. But I categorically reject traditional rabbinic Judaism for the reasons I just mentioned. So you're saying you're saying you reject the establishment, and we know what that can cost today, right? And so it's you also are saying no to the Jewish community because the Jewish community say you're a traitor. Jesus is the God of the Gentiles and your family. So these can be challenges. But I want to encourage you: more Jewish people have gotten saved in the past 50 years than at any time in history. When Israel retook Jerusalem in 67, something happened. The Jesus movement happened. Jews for Jesus began, and Jewish missions happened, and it was incredible. So be encouraged, and I, and I want to share one more thing with you. There was a survey done in the last five, ten years. The largest Jewish surveying organization in America surveyed thousands of Jewish people, unbelieving Jewish people, and asked them this question as part of their many questions: Is it a and a genuine um, is, it, is, it an, is it an appropriate expression? Is it kosher in short to believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? Guess how many respondents said, yes, it is appropriate, 34%. One out of three. And when the, when the Jewish community got that, it's like, whoa. And that tells us Jewish people are very open today to Jesus. But we have to couch Jesus In a Jewish context, so they understand you're not leaving anything. You're coming home. This is God's desire and design for you to come home to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So be encouraged. But yes, there's there's unspoken pressure that when you say yes to Jesus, you are saying no to Judaism, which you are. You're rejecting it. And you're basically saying, hey, I'm aligned with the church, which I am. And they say, well, if you're aligned with the church, you're not you're not welcome in the inn." You know what I mean? You're not part of the tribe, so there you go. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Right. Oh. I was just saying, I was just introducing Passover in the New Testament. He was going to celebrate the Passover in Luke 22. I was just introducing the Passover. But you're correct. The Last Supper was a Seder meal. And when he institutes the New Covenant, and maybe I'll come sometime and share a message on the New Covenant. The New Covenant is, was originally given to, in Jeremiah 31, to Jews. And when Jesus announced the coming of the new covenant through his blood, now this is when the Gentiles are grafted in. When you read Romans nine, ten, and 11, you go, oh, hey, you've grafted, grafted into the natural olive branch. So we're living under the new covenant economy today. We're not living under the Mosaic code. Does that make sense? So the Last Supper was a was a Seder meal, to be sure. And that's why he took the third cup and he had the he had the cup of redemption at that Seder meal and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there's a distinction between the traditional Seder meal and Jesus. (laughs) But what I what, what I've attempted to do is kind of connect the dots. You know, there's a there's a pithy catchphrase. Raise your hand if you know it. But. It goes like this, the, the Old Testament's the New Testament concealed, the New Testament's the Old Testament revealed. Anybody? You get that? Sunday school? You teach that in Sunday school, it's pretty cool. You'll confuse a lot of people, just kidding. No, it, it packs a punch. What I'm saying is, you, to understand one, you've got to study the other. Right? We, I mean, even the New Testament says that if you study the Old Testament only, the, the, the rabbis, they don't get it because they're not studying the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures. And we're not and we're going to have a very stilted, narrow understanding of the New Testament, the new covenant scriptures, unless we go back and study Jesus is the Passover. Oh, it was the Passover. Well, what about Passover? Go to Exodus and study the Passover. Okay, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us when Jesus tabernacling with his people. Well, What about the Christ in the feast of tabernacles? Did Jesus celebrate tabernacles? Go back and study tabernacles. So you ask a really good question. And I'm going to stop answering the question because I could continue. But we need to get to the next question. Anybody else? But thank you. That's a really good question. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. In fact, if you're interested, there's a really good video, again, produced by Jews for Jesus. Um, I love the ministry, and Jews for Jesus produces some of the best material in the world in regards to these issues. Forbidden Peace was a video. It's about 20 years old. It's about, it's about Jews and Arabs in the land and the love, the forgiveness, the fellowship they have under the banner of the Prince of Peace. And again, JewsForJesus.org. Have you ever seen it, Brother Wayne? Forbidden, forbidden Peace? It's called Forbidden Peace. And hey, it's a really powerful video of, of Israeli and Arab believers in Messiah and their unity and their testimony in the land. So that's a good one. But be encouraged. I said Jewish people are coming to faith. Well, more Muslims have come to faith in the last 15 centuries or the last fifteen years than in the last fifteen centuries combined. Did anybody know that? I mean missiologists are saying it's incredible what's happening. So lots of good stuff. Listen, I love Arabs. We're you know, we're Semitic people. <laughs> right? The sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael and you know, the family's got issues. You're part of the family. I'm part of the family, so hey, this is just this is the life. We work it out. We can only have true unity you know, I say the only hope for peace was born in the Middle East. The only hope for peace is down in the Prince of Peace. Because we're not going to figure it out humanly, to be sure. But good questions. Thank you. How are we doing? We're good. Hey, we have time for one more? One more. And then you're going to give me a time limitation on my answer, right? You get it. you you got to have some kind of buzzer or gong. There are no gongs, right? We're okay? Okay, two minutes. Okay, <laughs> i got two minutes. Go ahead. One more book you got to get. Israel, the land and the people. You can tell I like books, right? Israel, the land and the people. Okay. I've given you a truncated answer. Brief. Yes. But that book is the best. J. Wayne House is a well-known scholar. And each of the chapters are written. Israel, Land and the People, written about 20 years ago. Have you, have you seen it? Is it? Would you recommend it? I mean, the Abrahamic Covenant, Jeremiah 31, the significance of the, of the Jewish people in the land, all of it, it's all there. So really good stuff. I'd recommend that book. Really good stuff, okay? So thank you. <laughs> okay. thank you. Bless you, thank you.
1: You know, um, it's some exciting times, and we can get so excited, the fact that um, the, the Jewish people, both, even that of Gentiles, believe in Gentiles, but we're seeing a, a just a massive entrance into Israel during these days. I think it's like at six million now, or somewhere close to that. And you think about the persecution and all that they've gone through over the many years, not... You know, simply from Pharaoh was after him, Hitler, you know, here's a third generation survival of the Holocaust. The millions of Jews that uh, were destroyed then. God has a plan. And that plan is for his chosen people to come in faith with Jesus Christ and see the Messiah. The book of Matthew is written to the Jew. And many times when we're witnessing to the Jew, take them to the genealogy of Jesus and let them see The thread that runs from the Old Testament into the New Um, Testament—you know, concealed in the old, revealed in the new. Um, You can't separate the two. Well, we certainly do appreciate you. This just kind of catapults us into the Easter, to Passover, Um, Passover and Easter on the same day this year, Um, on Sunday, the um, April the first, and so. it's going to be an exciting time uh, together. Let me share with you this, uh, with Larry Stamm and his ministry. When he uh, stepped out of the boat uh, and walked on faith in that of a ministry, it is a, uh, a, a brilliant act of faith that he's done, he and his wife Lori. And uh, their ministry is um, is growing in East Tennessee. We're seeing some great things happening in East Tennessee uh, with uh With our Jewish believers, we're seeing in East Tennessee uh, the possibility of uh, building a hospitality center on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We're seeing more and more um, of our Messianic uh, friends and congregations that are assembling themselves and helping over in uh, Israel. Harvest Ministries, which is with Dean Hahn at First Baptist Church, Morristown, every month. A shipment, a crate is going over to Israel to help them with either medical supplies, furniture, food, uh, what have you. And we'll share with you more about that as well. But a wonderful ministry. This next month, they're uh, shipping 50 wheelchairs to uh, children's hospitals and um, all over there in Israel and medical centers there to help the children uh, that um, that are crippled. Uh, that are having trouble breathing. They have special uh, wheelchairs that they've had made. Some of them uh, are ten to $15,000 apiece uh, for them to have. And so that's all coming. A lot of it's coming from East Tennessee. So God's doing a work in this area. We're going to ask you tonight that um, in giving uh, for Larry's ministry, uh, he's going to be in the foyer here. There's books there for you. Uh, be sure to get on his list uh, for uh, emails, uh, updates, newsletters, uh, his new book that will be coming out in the next couple of months. He wants you to go ahead. You can even uh, purchase it tonight, and he will sign it when they come to him and mail it to you. And uh, so take time in the four-year to, to speak with Larry concerning that. And uh, so any offering that we give tonight is going to be a love offering for his ministry to help launch. Uh, His publications that he's doing, his ministries, he goes into churches uh, all over the southeast just like this uh, in sharing and helping people understand better of seeing Christ in the Passover. So be sure to do that tonight. And we're going to have plates in the back. There will be offering plates in the back for you. So don't go out this way. Just go that way, okay? Uh, And do that. Uh, Y'all have always been so gracious as a church to support ministries for the cause of Christ. And uh, God will bless you when you bless the Jew. Uh, That's just biblical, and uh, you do that tonight. And you just give whatever uh, God has laid upon your heart to give tonight. Let's all stand together. You have been so gracious tonight, and I know it's a little bit longer than we normally have uh, for our time together. But hadn't this been well worth it? Amen. Amen. Well, let's... uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we call upon you tonight and want to thank you for the day in which you have made this day that we come to worship, to uh, celebrate together um, this Lord's Day. Father, I thank you for the ministry that's been bestowed upon us uh, all day today. Father, a reminder of what it means to go on mission, Father, what it means to be surrendered rather than just committed. And, Father, we do pray for Larry and Lori during these days of their ministry and the raising of their children, their family. Father, I pray you'd protect them, watch over them. And, Father, for the many uh, of his Jewish friends that have not come to faith in Yeshua, Jesus our Lord. God, we pray for them. We pray for his ministry, that there would be many, that the harvest, Father, truly is, is white. And, uh, Father, give him opportunity. Give us, in this room, opportunity to share with the lost and dying world that's all around us, that they may know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, again, thank you for our guests tonight. I praise you for them. I just pray uh, a hedge of protection around them as they go. Father, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Larry if you.